The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In our modern culture, we consider one of our core accomplishments that we do not guilt trip people. We applaud ourselves for the concept of liberality and freedom being the right to pursue your own way of living without fear of judgment or condemnation or guilt. People should decide what's right or wrong for themselves, we suggest. Unless, of course, enough people don't like it. (laughs) While expecting peace and purpose by considering every option equally valid... We can't escape the suppressed anxiety that maybe there is a best way to live, a best life, a worthy one. So deep down we might wonder, am I good enough and who gets to determine that? What should I look to to know what a life worth living is? Or what if what I thought was worthy is actually unnoticed or unseen as worthy by someone greater? In fact... Even if I feel totally contented, what if the assurance that I'm giving myself is false? This morning's text will look at a life lived worthily. And so really just three big points today. If you have notes from the email, you can follow there. But really three big points. Number one, a life lived worthily. Number two, a life that is unworthy. And number three, a life that is worthy. Now let me warn you up front. We're going to spend most of the time on number one. And I have to warn you of that because I remember listening to sermons and I'm like, he's still on number one. <laughs> and we have two more to go. So don't worry. Number one is disproportionately most of the sermon because that's most of the text. And then at the end, briefly, number two and three. So number one, a life lived worthily. And I have four letters underneath that, an A, B, C, and D. So a life lived worthily. Letter A, a life lived worthily has a manner flowing from and fitting in a transcendent truth. And it's the gospel of Christ. Look in Philippians 1 verse 27 with me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first word only is put there for emphasis. Here is a primacy. Here is something better than the alternatives. Here is a straight edge that cuts all the other edges and brings them to level. It's the gospel of Christ. The next phrase, manner of life, let your manner of life. It's a, it's one Greek word, uh, polytuthomai, and, and it's, it's a little bit unusual. Normally it's used to describe how a citizen conducts himself in his citizenry, where, where he lives and when he lives. If you're a citizen of Raleigh, North Carolina, perhaps you have certain expectations to live like a citizen of Raleigh, North Carolina. Would. I'm, I'm learning those, of course. I feel like eating two Rooster's ice cream should be one of those expectations. <laughs> but perhaps you live in, in a different place. You're part of the early Roman Empire and you have certain citizen duties. Or perhaps you're a Russian on the cusp of the Bolshevik Revolution. You have certain duties to your time and place. Paul's going to use this word later in chapter 3, verse 20, to say that our citizenship is of heaven. Don't miss what he's saying. There is a time and a place that transcends all other times and places. There is a citizenship that defines us transcendently, beyond just the here and now. There are civic duties of a timeless realm. So 
So let your manner of life, let your citizenship be worthy of something timeless and transcendent. And here it is, brothers and sisters, the gospel of Christ. The word gospel is Greek for good news. It's a declaration of what someone else has done. And we know who the someone else is because it tells us right there. It's the good news of Christ. Here's what Christ did. And that should define what a worthy life is. Meaning someone who's a follower of Christ would have a life that is in line with, is fitting and becoming his life. Notice the, the, the end of verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. This is key because Paul is saying, hey, if I'm around, this is a life lived worthily. But even if I'm not here, this is still a life lived worthily. We, we all understand that concept of potentially thinking differently depending on who's in the home or in the room. But this is a truth that's transcendent no matter where you are, who's there. So a life lived worthily, letter A, has a manner flowing from and fitting in a transcendent truth, the gospel of Christ. But now letter B. A life lived worthily has a mission and a message transcending differences. Look at the end of verse 27. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. The S probably should be capitalized. Standing firm in the Holy Spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The Greek word suna lithuntes means to strive together normally in athletic or competitive context. So the ESV writes striving side by side. The NIV writes striving together as one. Have you ever played that game on the playground? I can't remember the, the, the name of it, but you like link arms with the other kids and you walk forward together and someone runs against you and tries to break it. Does anyone know that? I don't know what the name of it. Red Rover. And I have four children. That's sad. <laughs> Should have got that. So you're, you're, you're linked side by side so that you together are stronger as one. So that when opposition comes against you, it's harder to break the chain. That's what the translation is trying to show us. Now this is really remarkable because notice that this truth unites people. Now haven't you noticed, if you ever sadly watch the news, that our culture tells us to identify ourselves by our differences, to actually lean into our tribalism and our factionalism. In other words, in America, there's a whole lot of my sideism. <laughs> but in the scriptures we read, there should be a whole lot of side by sideism. Linking together as one. Now, what could link people together as one when there's so many things we can't seem to agree on? Notice the text continues. Striving together as one, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Actually, it's referring not just to what we believe together, but what we advance together. New Testament scholar Richard Mellick writes, the expression faith of the gospel means contending for the advance of the gospel. The team effort supplied by the church would present the gospel to the world. You see, it's our common cause that gives us commonality. It's that we share the same mission that allows us to link arms with one another. So having the same mission and message transcends differences. Their practical implications are immense because so easily, even within a church, we can think, well, this is my category and this is my area and I'm going to do whatever I kind of want to do in this area and then pretty quickly everybody's kind of doing their own thing. But this text says if we link arms for the same cause, then we go the same direction. 
So a life lived worthily has a transcendent truth. It transcends differences, but now let her see, it transcends even hateful opposition. Transcending fear. Look in verse 28, Philippians 1, 28. And if we're linked side by side, arms together, we are not frightened in anything by our opponents. To be clear, these are opponents that are truly undeserved. (laughs) So if we behave in a way that deserves opposition, well then shame on us. But if we lovingly, winsomely together share the truth and still face opposition, then let us not be afraid of it. But have you noticed the fear among American Christians lately? The cultural tides are turning. This isn't the place I wanted it to be anymore. What should we do when everyone's opposing us? I'm afraid that we're going to lose our way of life. I'm afraid that things aren't going to go the way we want them to go. But brothers and sisters, why would we be afraid when we know the end is already written? Look at how verse 28 continues. Not afraid because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but you of your salvation and that from God. There's no reason to be afraid of any shifting cultural tides because we know the person who owns the future and holds it in his hand. He's written the end from the beginning. And the true good news of the gospel will succeed. In fact, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no reason to be afraid of opposition when we know the person who is sovereign over all. But this verse also said something that made me pause all week long. I was at my desk trying to brainstorm, what does this sentence mean? And I'm one of those people that if I get stuck on one thing, I can't move on to anything else. So I kept reading and reading and reading, and finally the Lord let me think that I have it ironed out. So verse 28, here's the phrase that kept kicking me. Opponents, this is a clear sign to them, to the opponents of their destruction. How does that make sense? How do the opponents have a clear sign that they're going to be destroyed when people link arms without fear for the truth? How how does that make sense? Have you ever seen the the Grinch? Like the good one, the old one, the cartoon one? (laughs) And, and at the end, the, the Grinch, he's been a jerk and he's stolen Christmas and he's stolen everything. But then when he sits on the top of his mountain, ready to hear weeping and gnashing in teeth, instead he hears the who starts singing. And at first he's shocked and he's angered. Now I think if I remember the cartoon, then his heart grows ten sizes. So he quite literally has a change of heart and then he joins in, in the chorus. But imagine if the movie went a darker way. Imagine if instead of his heart growing, it, it shrunk. And the fact that they responded positively to opposition made him even angrier. If that was the case, then their joyful response would incite his anger, and his anger would prefigure his destruction. Now do you see what verse 28 is saying? Some who oppose truth, when people still respond joyously, it will actually make them even angrier. And their isolating hatred will prefigure their doom. This is a very heavy verse. C.S. Lewis helped me grasp it in his book, The Problem of Pain, when he wrote, The damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. 
They enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. He continues in the great divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Verse 28 is a very heavy verse. There are those who oppose what is true and beautiful and good. They oppose Jesus. And when people still stand in unity, it angers them even further and therefore is a clear sign to their destruction. Have you ever seen hate blind someone? Of course you have. You've misplaced your phone and you blamed everyone else in the household. (laughs) And then you found it two hours later in your back pocket, but you refused to admit it. (laughs) Hate blinded you. But on a serious cosmic scale, there are people who hate what is right and beautiful and true. They hate Christ as He really is. And that blinds them to truth. I want you to be humbled by something, though, from, from the passage, and I want you to be encouraged by something. Notice where the destruction comes from. But then notice where the salvation comes from. Look in verse 28. Their opposition is a clear sign to them of, notice the, the pronoun, of their destruction brought on themselves. To which we would think, oh, and therefore the opposite is ours, right? And of your salvation, surely our salvation is ours. We brought it on ourselves. No, look at the end of the verse. Your salvation is from God. The fact that they don't parallel is even more striking. This means that when we are destroyed, it's because we have leaned into our hatred. But when we are saved, it is by grace alone. I want you to hear this morning that God is a gracious God. And perhaps you've approached Christian truth with hostility. But God offers salvation in grace. Therefore, why today... Would you continue on a road of destruction? I want to challenge you to consider this morning that maybe some of your hostile opposition to Christian truth is not objective, but springs from your hostility. Perhaps for the first time this morning, you should be skeptical of your skepticism, and you should doubt your doubts. You see, our destruction comes from us, but salvation comes from God. Verse 28 tells us of God's goodness, and yet His goodness now comes counterintuitively in verse 29. So letter D, a life lived worthily, now letter D, has a willingness to suffer on behalf of transcendent suffering. Verse 29, for it has been granted, (laughs) notice the word, granted, here's a gift for you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. For the sake of Christ, it's ta huper Christu. And and in Greek, huper could mean for, or it could mean some other things. The ESV translates it for the sake of Christ. But And I hate to challenge a translation, but I think the NIV gets it right. On the behalf of Christ. Here's why that's different. This text is not saying suffer because Jesus is worth it. Although that's true. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying, suffer on the behalf of Christ. Suffer like Jesus would suffer. Suffer loving your enemies. Suffer to death, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Because that is how you show that salvation is from God. D.A. Carson writes, what a remarkable notion. Paul does not say these Christians have been called to suffer, but that they have been granted to suffer. We are blessed and privileged to suffer. That, of course, is precisely what he means. We often think of faith as a gift, but suffering, yes, suffering. He continues, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in God's good purposes, Jesus suffered on our behalf, bearing our guilt and shame and atoning for our sin. Surely it should be no surprise then that conduct worthy of the gospel includes suffering for Jesus. Did you know, though, that if you suffer on behalf of Jesus, if you suffer like Jesus, then you will show people Jesus. Paul knew this better than anyone. Because in Acts 7, there was a young Christian, a new believer named Stephen, who loved Jesus so much. And people hated him for it. Stephen dared to say that the only way to be right with God is to put your faith in Jesus. And it made people so angry that they gathered together and they threw Stephen down a pit and they picked up heavy boulders to stone him to death. And do you know who was sitting there? They threw all the coats at his feet. His name was Saul. We know him as Paul. Here's Paul sitting there. They're throwing the tunics at his feet and they're stoning Stephen to death. And here's what Stephen cried out before they killed him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. And in Acts 8, verse 1, we read, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then in chapter 9, Jesus came to Saul and said, why are you persecuting me? You see, when you suffer on behalf of Jesus, you point people to Jesus. This is how Saul was converted to the Apostle Paul. And then he did the same for others. He was put in jail in Acts 16. And there he is suffering and yet singing. And who sees that singing and points to Jesus? The Philippian jailer who now is the planting of this very church. This is how it's always worked when Christians return evil with good. We point to the good Savior who has rescued us. On our notes here in a text box in the middle, I wanted to pause and double-click on Christian suffering because it's such a big topic. Let's pause on it for a moment. Let me give you four further thoughts on Christians and suffering. Number one, suffering should not be sought or self-inflicted as a weird badge of Christian achievement. So don't go out and try and fight some cultural war like a jerk and then blame it on being a Christian. Listen to Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For God has written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Suffering should never be sought as some sort of badge of Christian achievement. But number two, suffering on the behalf of Christ means truly loving those who in blind hate oppose Jesus. And it means loving them to death. Number three, God gifts suffering. It's been granted to us. It is a necessary means of grace. 
And it is a necessary platform of the gospel in testimony to others. Christian, is it possible that you are trying to pray away what God has ordained to save your neighbors? Is it possible that you hate suffering excessively because you worship comfort inordinately? God does grant suffering to us. That doesn't mean we yearn for it or wish for it. But it means that He can ordain it so that He can proclaim His grace even to His opposition. Number four, Christians have solidarity in suffering in the same way we have solidarity in our salvation and solidarity in our sharing of our salvation. Have you noticed the text? Link arms together in your salvation and in your mission, and yes, even in our suffering. Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, warns us that perhaps Americans particularly don't understand verse 29 and 30. Because we don't know much, perhaps, compared to our brothers and sisters in more hostile countries on the globe, what it means to stand firm in one spirit or to contend for the gospel together and to do so without being afraid. Here's what he writes. Let me quote him now. The net result is that the content of Paul's explanation is something contemporary Christians hear reluctantly, either out of guilt that so many of us look so little like this, or out of fear that someday this really might be true for us. But the key is to return to Paul's emphasis. We suffer for the sake of Christ. Our tendency is to focus on the suffering part. But what is needed is a radical shift towards the Christ part. Christ, through death on a cross, not only saved us, but modeled how God deals with opposition. Here's how God deals with opposition. He loves them to death. So, let us, like Jesus, rejoice when we have the opportunity to love even those who wrongly oppose us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. The New Testament church longed for this. So in Acts 5.41, when they left the presence of the council, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us clearly, even hereunto were you called, that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would suffer on his behalf. So number one, a life lived worthily. And that's really what Philippians 1, 27 through 30 is about. But there is an implication underneath it, and that leads us to number two. All right, these are the big ones. Number one, a life lived worthily. Number two, a life that is unworthy. Will you go back to Philippians 1, verse 27? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Doesn't that punch you? How could I be worthy of Christ? How could I ever be worthy of Christ? This is where grammar is very, very important. Adjectives define nouns, but adverbs define verbs. This phrase is not referring to what you can be. D.A. Carson catches this and he writes, What does it mean to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? The expression is striking, but it is adverbial. It describes a manner of conduct, not us. 
Paul does not say that we ourselves are worthy of the gospel, for that would be a contradiction in terms. The gospel, by definition, is good news to people who are not worthy of it. But once we have received the gospel, however unworthy we are, we are to now conduct ourselves in a manner fitting it, becoming it, worthy of it. The difference between an adverb and an adjective is massive, and I've noticed this as a pastor. When I would prepare to have communion with our church, people who had grown up with the King James Version would come to me in a very tender heart and say, Pastor Josh, I am not worthy to come before God. And I would say, well, let's meet, let's talk. And I would find most of the time they had a tender heart and they wanted to be obedient to God, but they just didn't feel good enough. They felt that way because the King James in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says, whoever shall eat this bread or drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But they missed that unworthy is not an adjective, it's an adverb. Hence the L-Y. The ESV makes it clear. Whoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. You see, here, here's the point. If worth is an adjective about us, we are all unworthy. It is an adverb that refers to how we respond to someone who is worthy. We could never live worthy. We could never be good enough. So that sinking feeling we have that there's a straight edge somewhere, and even if we keep moving the goalpost, we can't deny that we haven't met the straight edge. It's because there is a straight edge. Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, Therefore you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, there is a transcendent perfection, and there is a perfect life. And deep down, as well as you might live, we know we never live good enough. But I would hate this morning if you left wondering if you could be good enough. Do you know who Mr. Rogers is? Fred Rogers. He had a documentary about him two years ago. The title of it was, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And I read about the documentary, which actually I haven't seen myself. From what I've read in the second half of the movie, Rogers' widow, Joanne, recounts a final conversation on his deathbed that Mr. Rogers had with his wife. He looked at his wife, knowing that he was about to die, and said to Joanne, Am I a sheep? Now, if you know the Bible, you know what sheep means. Sheep are those who belong to God. Goats are the ones who don't. So Mr. Rogers was asking, do I belong to God? Joanne looked at her husband and said, if anyone is a sheep, you are. Meaning, if anyone is good enough to belong to God, surely it must be a person like Mr. Rogers. Jared Wilson writes, if anyone is a sheep, you are, means that whatever you think of Fred Rogers, he was A kind, generous, patient, caring man. He almost is universally affirmed as one of the nicest men in public life. Some, in fact, charge him of being too nice. His children said he was that way at home as well. That's who he really was. And yet here he is, ready to face the eternal judge, and he's still uncertain enough of his goodness to wonder, was I good enough? You see, if you look at your life as whether or not you're worthy you will never feel worthy because you and I are not good enough. 
And that's why, praise God, this is not an adjective. It's an adverb. It's telling us, live in a responsive way to the one person who is worthy. You see, the answer that Joanne should have given her husband is this. Honey, you don't have to worry if you're a good enough sheep. You can rejoice that we have a good enough shepherd. See, Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's not about if we can be worthy. It's about that he's worthy. You see, your goodness isn't good enough, but Jesus Christ's goodness is enough. And he offers to give it to us. But if we try and be good in our own, then we too will face death like Mr. Rogers wondering, am I good enough? Have you noticed how much morality changes? People who 20 years ago were the champion of the societal values of their political party now can't even speak at their conventions (laughs) because their morality has moved that quickly. Things that right now our country thinks are morally abhorrent 20 years from now will probably flip. In fact, if you and I were even judged by our own morals, we'd be in trouble. Imagine we were to die and God said, hey, I'm a nice guy, an analogy I've heard others use before. And instead of judging you by my law, I'll just judge you by everything that you've said was good or bad. You didn't know it, but I put an Alexa in your house from birth, (laughs) and it's been recording everything you said other people ought to do or ought not to do. I'm going to hit play now. Sit back. It's going to take a while. (laughs) And you listen to your own voice over the years saying, you should or you shouldn't, or he really should or he really shouldn't. We would fail by our own standards. If the question is, am I worthy? The answer resoundingly is no. But the good news is, Jesus is. Number one, a life lived worthily must be based on someone else's life. A life that is unworthy, number two, is all of our life. But number three, a life that is worthy is Christ's life. As a boy, I memorized part of Philippians 2. It goes on in verse 5 to say, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it, not robbery, to be equal with God, but took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, there's one name that's worthy. In Revelation 5, the elders and the cherubim fall before Jesus Christ and they say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has ransomed His people from every tribe and tongue. And nation. You see, there's a story that we often hear about sacrifice, but what is often missed is the worthiness part. In several months or years, or however long it takes for movie theaters to be open again, you can be sure that they will be playing superhero movies again. And someone with a cape or tights or both will near the end of the movie make a decision to offer himself sacrificially for everybody else. Now, all of those movies and all of those Greek mythology from thousands of years ago, they're all echoes 
They're all actually prayer wishes of the one true story that really happened. See, everyone wants to believe that there is this person who would sacrifice himself for us. But see, here's the one part of the movie that they never get right. The superhero near the end almost always says, I will now willingly die for all of these innocent people. But see, the good shepherd gives his life for all of us guilty people. You see, there is one worthy life. But he gives his worth to the unworthy to be received through faith. And if we receive that gift, then we should live worthily of the one worthy life by linking arms with a transcendent cause for a transcendent truth for our transcendent Savior to declare His greatness to all we can. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear God, my greatest concern this morning is that someone is here who maybe internally has been wrestling with, am I good enough? Is my life worthy? And Lord, let them not leave wrestling over whether or not they could ever achieve a standard. Help them to come to humility this morning to say, you know what? No, I'm not worthy. I'm sinful. I've failed. But Jesus Christ is perfect. And His worthy life given voluntarily on the cross to pay for all of my unworth. He can transfer His robe of perfection and take away my robe of failure. So God, I pray that people today would receive Jesus Christ in saving faith. Let no one leave here who years from now on their deathbed would have to ask, am I a sheep? Help people here to have the assurance that I am a great sinner, but He is a great Savior. That I am a faltering sheep on my best days, but Jesus is the good shepherd who purchased my life with His blood. And Lord, with that confidence, may we then live in a manner that fits and becomes the glorious gospel of Christ as a church for Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.